folks. It is going off track. Tis Steven mit Brad. That's German. Da? Yeah. That, no, that's Russian. Oh. Ja is German. Ja. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's Rastafarian. Uh, and Jonah Bear, who's speaking of Ja, have we heard Jawbreaker? Yeah. It's- yeah, we've heard it. <laughs> For those of you not familiar, it's like the what, the reggae version of Jawbreaker songs. Yeah. Who, who did it? Some dude. Some dude who's in some other band. I can't remember. Yeah. It's it's okay. I'm kind of over these, like, I love puns and that kind yeah. of stuff, but it's like, I don't know. It's it's a little too much. Yeah, Jawbreaker is a bit too much. Like, it's it's. I feel like the joke isn't, it's not... It's not enough there for me. I think that is a, a tweet that went too far. So like, yes. what if what if there's jawbreaker meets reggae? Would it be jawbreaker at clever? Yeah. And you know? I give the guy credit for actually sitting down, recording the songs, doing yes. the art, putting it out. It's cool, but it's like I don't know, I'm sick of I don't know what it is about it actually. I can't pinpoint. <laughs> Cause I like Is it because it, it's reggae? Because I don't like reggae. I mean I'm not it's I'm not crazy about you know what the problem is? Is my downstairs neighbors um, listen to something me and my roommate call public domain reggae, which is like the most generic. Re- it's not Bob Marley, but it's just like very bass heavy, uh, super repetitive reggae. Eka Mouse. Yes. And it's like, so it's, and you can only hear like the low frequencies, but it's very like, and it drives me crazy. So now anything with reggae automatically just kind of sets me off. I, I feel that way about reggae, period. If it's not Bob Marley, who, Unless it's Redemption song, I don't really care. Uh, I just reggae hasn't evolved past. Like reggae got to a point and stopped because they're like, "Oh, he's dead." Well, why should we tramp on it? And nobody, it hasn't evolved since until one artist. I heard this one guy, and I was like, "This is reggae." That I mean, I don't like it, but it's it's different. So I like that. Turned out to be um, uh, Damien Junior Gong Marley, and I was like, "Of course." <laughs> I, I had a record. This dude, and I still have it. This guy Cedric I M Brooks. Have you ever heard him? Uh-uh. He used to play with Bob Marley, and he's awesome. I okay. cut his record one of the day when I was working at AP. They didn't live there. I felt like I lived there. <laughs> uh, but there's, I like some selector, I guess. I think some of it's good. Yeah, I guess you have to be But you're right. I, picky. I don't know if it hasn't evolved or just it, it's not in it's, our... But it's like any music. If you look at, like, garage rock from the 60s, like, that sounds great to listen to it. But, like, bands since then that have not, that are just mimicking that are boring. Yeah. However, bands that reference that... yeah. You know, like dance hall. I love. I like dance hall. I like things that reference reggae. I like. Um, I I really don't like reggae, but I like I like the the ska punk. But I think again, everybody listened to Operation Ivy and stopped. I don't think. Well, I think it went anywhere yes, else after that. I I think the problem was that Operation Ivy was so good. Yes, that they were <laughs> such a fluke because they were those songs were so good. Everything yeah. about them was like perfect, mm-hmm. and then I feel like anyone doing it afterwards, it's like. But we're also these the cyclical loop. It's like the fifteen to twenty year loop is coming up, guys. Because oh, that's how all these music. No, totally. You know, there's going to be Scott Punk's going to. Did come you back. ever see Up Ivy, Brad? Never saw him, no. Because uh-huh. we know your relationship with Lint. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I've danced many, many, many times. I wish yes. it was so funny when you said, yeah, a few podcasts back when you said Lint, and then me and Stephen just like looked at each other and we're like, whoa. I've only seen that in, like, liner notes and being called that and like, the old, old Op Ivy stuff. When I met him, he said, I'm Tim. Well, all those guys, like, I think I, I met him all through Stormy Shepard, our booking agent, and she called Tim Lint, and then, because she had worked with Op Ivy. And the same with, like, she booked Offspring, and she called all those guys by their names. 
So I would like even Dex- would Dexter's a nickname, referring right? Referring to people to Brian, you know, Brian and uh, I can't even remember their names now. Fettuccine, I think. My mind is gone. But yeah, Linguini. so like I'd introduce those guys or refer to them as their names and nobody knew what I was talking about. <laughs> and then I had this fear that I was sounded like a fucking poser asshole. <laughs> I think it's cool that Operation Ivy never did any type of reunion thing. Yes. I think that that's okay and bands can exist in a certain time and not everyone has to see everything at every period uh, in time and I think that that's perfect. I think all bands should have a nine-year expiration date. Yes. Take what the Beatles did and just follow it and just <laughs> stop. Yeah. Because you two, you can keep making records, but it's not going to happen. There's a couple bands where they'll put out a new record and I'll get excited and then I'll start listening to them and be like, oh yeah, like... A new Weezer record comes out. I'm like, oh, Weezer, new record. And I listen to him like, I haven't liked their last eight records. <laughs> like, this sounds the same. Like, yeah. the first two records are great. There's a lot of bands like that for me. Green Day. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Green Day, Green Day records sound like Green Day records to me. Yeah. Which is fine. Green Day should sound like Green Day. But I kind of want to, I kind of want to. I. It's like Bjork. I used to be really into Bjork and I loved everything about her. And then she just started going too far. Like the opposite. She's like, I'm going to make this entire record with nothing but vocals. I'm like, that's cool. Mix away. Then you hear it and you're like, ah, oh, this sounds like you made a whole record with nothing but vocals. <laughs> and like the last record, I'm going to do this all on touch screens. Well, that's just cheating because that's everything now. But if she made a country western record, I'm all into that. Right. I think that would be super cool. You know, well, there wh- is one artist. I, I only know of one artist that's been able to do this. Do and what? I'm not even a huge fan of this artist, but he seems to constantly be able to make music and not be boring and be innovative and it's neil young oh yeah like love him or hate him and to hate some of the weird shit that he did like he he's pretty on he's pretty exciting yeah yeah and i didn't see him when he was just here but i heard it was awesome do you do you understand that uh pono thing he's doing you heard of this oh the the for the for the MP3s? high res music yeah yeah, to make yeah. like MP3 sound like I've vinyl. I've tried to dig into the tech a little bit and could not really figure out how he was going to pull this off. But um, he like called Steve Jobs about it. That's yeah. who he was working yeah. with to I make. Want, have you read his book? It's supposed to talk about all. Neil Young just put out a yeah, book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you he read was, it? Mm, no, I know you read a lot of. I don't read anything but comics. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's a comic. It's a. Uh, yeah. It's his life. As he a, did do a comic of Greendale, the last record. Really? Yeah, there's a comic book version of the storyline that went through that. I remember sitting and watching that on PBS or something, and I was like, wow, I'm bored. <laughs> but I, but then I have this, I should watch this because I have friends really into Neil Young, and if I watch this, how my brain works. If I watch this, I can say I watched it, and then I can reference it, and I'll sound smart. <laughs> Speaking of sounding smart, today's guest on the podcast yes! is really smart. Is really smart. <sighs> Tim Kreider. This is Jonah. He he said we have to have this guy on. He wrote this amazing book. He's this amazing cartoonist. And he shows up and proves all of those facts tenfold. Yeah, I uh I read his essay, uh New York Times mm-hmm. that had has like nine hundred comments, it's closed. <sighs> and then I got his book from the library, which he makes fun of me about. And uh <laughs> His book, We Learn Nothing, is incredible. Cartoons and essays, and the essays are so interesting, and I emailed him, and uh, he was totally into it. Yeah, how awesome is that? Jonas is, he, this is how Jonah gets guests. He's like, oh, I like this book. Oh, they live here? All right, I'll find him on email. That's oh, the whole cool. reason I like doing this podcast, It's because <laughs> I would have no other reason for talking to this guy. It's You get legitimacy for cyber-stalking. I get legitimacy mostly from having Brad and Steven on my team, and doing it at a real studio, not uh, in my basement. Ah, that does help. That does help. Thank you, Brad, and thank you, Rubber Tracks. Thank you, Rubber Tracks. Here's Tim Kreider, who's going to make you all think. Let's go! 
Baltimore, and I heard, I never encountered this guy, but I heard there was a guy who would go from bar to bar offering injections of B12. And it was was like 20 bucks, but you wouldn't be hung over for weeks after that. Wow. And because I'm from Baltimore, my initial reaction was, wow, 20 bucks for weeks of no hangover. That's a pretty good deal. And I told that to someone here in New York, and they were like, wait a minute, people were accepting intravenous injections from a guy in a bar? I was like, well, I mean, yeah, if you say it that way, I guess it sounds like not. So how long was John Waters doing that? (laughs) Oh, man, so... How do you pronounce your last name? I just want to make sure. Kreider. Kreider. So today on the podcast, our guest is Tim Kreider, um, who is an amazing author, cartoonist. Um, Isn't it fascinating when they say cartoonist when it's not animated? No, I, I, I call it cartoonist. I know. That's what I'm saying. I think it's great. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I found out about you through your The Busy Trap essay, and um, I read it and got your book out from the library and then when i got the book out i forgot about the essay and i was like why did i get this book i it didn't and then i read it in like a day and i thought it was so amazing i mean um i should probably take you to task for checking it out of the library but i, I know, check everything out of the I know, library I, too I, I hardly ever buy it communist i know it's i feel like it's either like kindle or library for me i just don't have room for any i know stuff. in new york you're in a yeah. space but um i want to talk about so many things um i know you started as a political cartoonist i didn't or? even start as a political cartoonist okay. i started out just as a cartoonist my, my favorite cartoonist was a guy named b Clyburn, who was most famous for his book of cat cartoons in the late 70s but he he studied as a surrealist and he, he did several other books that are much stranger and darker than that and um i started out just as a slavish imitator of his doing these bizarre hilarious one panel cartoons um i didn't want to be a political cartoonist because what kind of Wonk wants to be a political cartoonist, but then 9-11 and the Bush administration and the war on terror happened, and I just felt like it would have been too frivolous not to be one. So I, I, I describe it as having been drafted, um, involuntarily conscripted into service as a political cartoonist. So that's what I got known for. Did you get a letter from the president? I, I wrote the president. <laughs> I, I once wrote George Bush. I wrote both Clinton and Bush. Clinton I invited out for a giant fish sandwich at Baltimore's Broadway Market. Did, he was, they, were, they said they were unable to confirm his availability at this time. For a fish <laughs> sandwich? I, that sounds like a lie. <laughs> I know. And this is back before his heart attack. It was a big sandwich for three yeah. bucks. He would have loved it. And George Bush I invited to submit any cartoon idea to me, and I would draw that cartoon. <laughs> Um, and I never heard anything back. And you think that man would have a plethora of cartoon ideas. (laughs) Wow. Now where, where in Baltimore? Uh, well, I, I lived in various neighborhoods in Baltimore. My, my favorite neighborhood to live in was Fells Point. Mm -hmm. I had some friends who were moving up there from, from DC. Oh, so they'll like it more. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's usually how it goes. We're like moving to Baltimore. I'm from Northern Virginia, so I'd spent a lot of time in Baltimore, but in the Inner Harbor, which Baltimore. isn't really Baltimore. No, it's like Times Square. Yeah. Is that exactly. where like the Ram's Head and Whole Foods and all? I went somewhere like on the waterfront where everything looked new and yeah. my friend's band played. But then at night, people were like banging on the tour bus. It was super, got super sketchy at night. Huh. But it looked really suburban. That's probably the, the Inner Harbor East, okay. which is kind of a new area. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Fells Point is east of that. And Fells Point's a very old maritime district with about 86,000 bars. Wow. Yeah. 
Yeah, Baltimore's an interesting town. It's and, a hard drinking town. It's a town of character. Yeah, quite a bit. You know, well, port town, you know, mm-hmm. That's where, where it all starts. Why are the houses so tiny? The row houses. I don't, don't you ever know. notice that? They have all these row houses. Because when you're drunk, like, you don't eat, you're thin. <laughs> they look just like row houses here, but they're like tiny, like the elvish. They are smaller. <laughs> they're like that in Philadelphia, too. Really? Yeah. Oh, the row houses, yeah. Well, there's a lot of big old rambly stone houses in Philadelphia. Yeah. There's mm-hmm. a lot of quarries down there. Mm-hmm. Plus, it's cheap because who wants to live in Philadelphia? <laughs> I should say that. Spoken My like sister s- lives in Philadelphia. <laughs> Spoken and like it, somebody from Baltimore. Yeah. Yeah, if you're from Baltimore, you're allowed to make fun of a lot of places. <laughs> My- my grandma lives in Philadelphia, and she's always like, you should move here. It's so much cheaper. And I'm like, yeah, I know. Like, everywhere is cheaper. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> we're aware of that. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, but Philly, it seems like they just, they, they left the streets the way the carriages roamed on them. You know, it doesn't seem like they branched out. Like, in New York, they said, let's make it a grid. Well, except for the West Village. We'll leave that mm-hmm. screwy. But everything else will keep, you know, like, graph paper, which is boring, but it works, you know? In Baltimore, I mean, did uh, did that evolve over time, or is it still kind of... It's not like Annapolis. Baltimore's pretty grid-like. Okay. Certainly not like D.C., which is a navigational nightmare. Yeah, they did that on purpose. Though. I know. It's designed to foil invasion. Yes. And, well, and also make people dignitaries from other nations be like, I can't figure this place out. Yeah, don't fuck with us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. You want to be on Monroe Street Northeast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, we learned nothing. Was that... When was sort of the content for that created? Was that over the past 10 years or early stuff or later? No, most of it I wrote within the last couple of years. I mean, the there's two kinds of essays in that book, ones that tend to be around 1,500, 2,000 words, and those all started out as op-eds in the New York Times. Uh, and then there's the much longer ones, which are more like 20 pages, and those I wrote um, after I got the deal to, to do the book over a period of about two years. So you started out wanting to do to be a cartoonist, and I'm sorry, who was the gentleman that you were inspired by? Uh, his name was B. Cliven. B. Cliven. What, Cliven. And what was his? Well, he he made his fortune with this book of cat cartoons that was Just, called Cat in the late 70s. Okay. But he's got um, half dozen other books that are um, far more insidious and strange, uh, with titles like Whack Your Porcupine, Never Eat Anything Bigger Than Your Head, Two Guys Fooling Around with the Moon. Never Eat Anything Bigger Than Your Head. I know this. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if my, uh, I don't know how I got into it, but when I was a kid, I was, I mean, you know, it's like gotten to Snoopy and then you realize that it's, you know, slightly more subversive than, subversive than you think, mm-hmm. you know, and you branch out into other things. And for me at the time, it was Garfield, which wasn't that subversive. Well, this is still- what happened to me with Clyburn is I, I, I made a lateral move from Garfield to the cat book and then that got me into the hard stuff. Yeah. Because um, <laughs> then I discovered his other books and they were like faintly disturbing to me. I didn't. I didn't really get them. I loved them, but there were, there were some of those cartoons I didn't really understand until I was an adult, if then. <laughs> um, I mean, like I said, he, he considered himself a surrealist. He studied under uh, Richard Lindner at, at Pratt, and that was his training. But then he became a cartoonist for Playboy. Oh, wow. He was living that way. That'll do and it. And even his Playboy cartoons are not like typical Playboy cartoons. My favorite one by him shows this big... It's clearly meant to represent an orgy. It's this kind of big lump of flesh writhing with little limbs sticking out of it and, and from somewhere in the center of that lump of humanity is coming a thought balloon and in the thought balloon is a sandwich and a glass of milk <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing yeah <laughs> had you always wanted to, to draw uh yeah i mean i was always medium good at both drawing and writing 
And I kind of made up my mind sometime in high school that I wanted to be a writer, I think, because I don't know why. Drawing is way more fun, but I think I thought being a writer was more prestigious. They gave you more money, which turns out to be true. But <laughs> cartooning is the only thing that it's more money than. <laughs> uh, I, I actually studied writing. I, that's what I majored in in college. Where did you go to school? Johns Hopkins. I okay. was in the writing seminars program there. But then... Back then, there wasn't really a market niche for nonfiction of the kind that I write now, and I, I I didn't know how to write anything else. I tried to write fiction, I just I never understood how to do it. I still don't. Um, I just didn't get it, and so I kind of slaved miserably trying to write short stories and send them to literary magazines back then, which was the only kind of career path I understood for becoming a writer, and I didn't succeed. And then I. I got picked up in the local alternative weekly for my cartoons instead. So I just acquiesced to that fate. I'm like, okay, I'm a cartoonist. It's fine. What would be the alternative weeklies? Uh, down there, it's the Baltimore City paper. Okay. Got it. So were you always writing during the time you were doing the cartoon work? Yeah, intermittently. Uh, you know, if something interested me, I write an essay about it. But I was just telling a younger writer that I didn't ever get anything nationally published until uh, I hit upon the idea of writing about a subject other than myself. Because um, no one really wants to read young people talking about themselves. It's not all that interesting, it turns out. Um, and I, I, the first thing I ever got published in a national magazine was a um, essay of film criticism. It was published in Film Quarterly, which is a scholarly journal. It pays nothing. But still, I don't think any writer forgets their first experience of validation getting published. No, like, totally. You just sag with relief <laughs> because it's some, it's, it's some confirmation that you're not completely deleted. That's how they knew not to pay you. Yeah, <laughs> this will this will mean something. Well, that's that's why everyone doesn't pay you when you're in your twenties as an artist. I mean, I never got more than twenty bucks a week for my cartoons in the city paper. Wow! And toward the end of my career there, I was spending two full days of work drawing because mm -hmm. you regret it when you do a half-assed job of drawing and then you see it in a book later. You wince and think, oh, I could have taken more time with that. <laughs> so just for reasons of self-respect, I put a lot more time and work into it, but I'm still getting paid in the low two figures. Wow. You know, it's really interesting about what you said, though. I feel like I use this as an excuse when I start writing sort of creatively. I'm like, ah, oh, you're writing about yourself. No one cares. No one cares. But mm -hmm. I read your whole book and I didn't know you. And I felt like it was really, the stories were so interesting and the perspective, I felt like, you sort of made people care, I guess. I um, I think I, I I've thought about this a lot. I, I there's there's been some fine memoirs written, but I don't really care for that form much. And I don't think of what I do as writing memoir. It took me a long time to figure out how you could write about yourself without just talking about yourself. Like you're you're sort of using yourself and your friends and your experiences as object lessons um, to talk about more universal themes like a better way of saying what i'm trying to say would be I, I i won't write something if it's just about me it's supposed to be about you like i don't know what's a good example like i i, I had a one of my essays about a friend of mine who was transgendered and i flew out to nina wisconsin to sort of keep her company through her sex change surgery while she recuperated and that's kind of a cool story to tell in a bar but I'm pretty scrupulous about trying to figure out how is that a story that anyone else needs to hear. And and what I ended up making it about was a meditation on what gender even is. And why is it so important to me to figure out which gender do I think of this friend of mine as? Why was that so? You know, it, it bugs you. I mean, people are thrown into confusion and anxiety and sometimes um, 
fury when they can't immediately identify someone's gender. You know, that's why people used to get the shit kicked out of them for having long hair. Um, it's, it's a big deal. And, and why is that? So that's the sort of thing I, I ended up trying to make that about. Because, I don't know, it's just... For, for a guy whose work is as exhibitionistic as mine is, I, I, I feel this real distaste for just, like, holding forth about yourself and your interesting problems. Yeah, I understand. What I thought was really interesting, too, that I had never read about, someone really talk about, was the idea of sort of having a breakup with a friend uh-huh. and not a romantic situation. And, I mean, I felt like that's got to be so relatable to so many people, but it's not really articulated. No, I remember back before I started writing that essay... Uh, someone I knew asked me, so what kinds of things are you thinking of writing about for your book? And I mentioned that idea, and she said, oh, there's an essay in the Wall Street Journal about that this week. And she began, kind of sadistically, I thought, to read it out loud to me <laughs> while I feebly begged her to please, for God's sake, stop talking. I could not bear to hear it. Uh, I didn't want to know what someone else smarter than me had already said about this. But yeah, it's one of those things that's like too... It's too embarrassing to own up to that you're like secretly heartbroken because a friend dumped you. Um, and it's happened to me since then. You know, it's happened to me a couple times in life. And it, it hurts in a way it's too embarrassing to talk about. There's, we don't even have like a, a name for it. It's called I Don't Call You Back. <laughs> yeah. That's very fascinating. That, that's happened to me recently. And I, it takes a, it's a, it's a, it's not a nice, I mean, this is how everyone do, does it. It's lazy and passive and it's, it's not, uh, it's not painless for the other person. It's a very slow, no. painful way to realize you've been broken up with. Yeah. It's just after about six months, you realize, hey, they're not calling me back kind of on mm-hmm. purpose, I think. Yeah. And, it, and, and, and what's weird about that is that on the person who's doing the dumping, there's no compassion because you don't want there to be. So you don't care. You know what I mean? So it's almost as if, you know, the healthy way, as my therapist would say. You know, you just need to say, look, I don't, this is not working out. I'm mm-hmm. really sorry. You know, and I know this is going to hurt your feelings, but sorry, you know. But the reason that you're not saying that is because you don't care because you don't want to hang out with them anyway. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> and that, that sounds way dickish because it's like they were your friend to begin with. There was a reason for it. But, uh, you know, as a human being, you should. But who defines what a human being is? Well, and also you know? people generally take to take, tend to take the lazy passive way out of yep. any situation. Yeah, completely. It doesn't reflect all that well on us as a species, but nah. it's pretty much universal. And then yeah. essay also mentioned Michael Ruppert's collapse, which is was that the same one? It's was a different that, essay. That was a different. It was a one? different friend breakup. Okay, gotcha. Um, um, were you, did you get? I mean, I know you. Actually, start, I know this is a loose rambly show, so can yes. I backtrack? Yeah, absolutely. You insert can, something in parentheses. Loose. You absolutely. just defined our program. Yeah. Write okay. that down. Loose <laughs> rambly show. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I can't remember whether I got to say this in the final draft of the essay on, on friend breakups or not, but I did talk to some people who had explicitly renegotiated their friendships, like would say, listen, we can't talk about my romantic life anymore because it really annoys me when you give me advice about that. Or they'd say, look, I, I can't be there for you in certain situations. But those people were all female. And I, I, I don't remember if I was able to talk about this or not, but I feel like there's a gender divide there. Like among guys, it's almost taboo to acknowledge that you are friends, right. that you seek out each other's company on purpose because you enjoy it. <laughs> wow. You know, it's like it's, it's forbidden to speak of the friendship itself, whereas women are way more open about, you know, kind of renegotiating the boundaries and conditions of their, their well, I think relationships. It falls, I think it falls into the, the way they describe it. I'm going over to see my girlfriend. 
Mm. If I say I'm going to go hang out with my boyfriend Jonah, that's a whole different. It's a whole other kettle of fish. You know? I've only had those kind of situations come from girls, personally, which I think is interesting. Like I've never, breakups Yeah, I've girls? never really had one with a dude unless it's someone I was like well, in a band with. They do seem to like relationship talks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the but, uh, radio audience note, I am making a weary and pained face. <laughs> oh, no, the sigh spoke volumes. <laughs> but what about, I mean, growing up, I mean, I haven't done it, but when I was, it seems like I was always in with the wrong crowds when I was, my best friend growing up through like three different phases was always ter- the worst best friend to have like you know what i mean <laughs> like people going to jail and stuff and so i broke up with like two best friends before like i exited high school did you visit them in prison <laughs> <laughs> yeah i've broken up with friends for the same reason they finally just got too crazy for right. me to deal with and it took years because friendships mattered to me and these were friendships that went way back and it got to the point where I was bracing myself every time I saw one guy. Like, yeah. okay, I've got a plan for later on, so I've got an exit strategy here. We're going to hang out. We're going to have exactly one beer, catch up. Good to see you. And then I always came away basically reeling with horror. Like, it was so <laughs> much worse than I had imagined. I have one that be. still calls my parents. Mm. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I mean, they Brad were friends with Brad. They were friends with my parents, but, like, you know, yeah. It's, see, I have the mentality It's that it's... I was an army brat, so we mm-hmm. moved all the time. So, so you didn't have to break up. <laughs> never had to break up with people. You'd be like, "See ya." So yeah. I, had, so I'm, I'm really bad at at keeping in touch with people, mm-hmm. and I think about people a lot. And then if a lot of people, if I meet and talk to again, it's as if time never uh, went away. Right. So uh, there was no duration in between. Um, but <clears throat> so I had a friend who, like, I was the guy that always hung out with this dude, you know, and. People, people would meet him and be like, that guy's kind of a dick. And I'm like, ah, he's fine. You know? mm-hmm. And then at one point, I started realizing, you know, he is kind of a dick. Well, yeah. I'll be the one who calls him out on it, mm-hmm. which I did quite often. And that just didn't change anything. And then at one point, no, it I s- and then, it, it, you know, it's kind of fun. But <laughs> sure. at, at one point, he just was really rude to some friends of mine. And I just remember going, ah, I'm done. Mm-hmm. And just did the passive thing of... I'm not going to call, I'm not going to email, I'm not going to respond to anything. Just don't care. Mm-hmm. And eventually, you know, my wife was like, you need to go tell this guy. So uh, I did. And, mm-hmm. it, and it ended as horrible as I thought it would. <laughs> so, but the funny thing was... advice did not work out <laughs> yeah. well in that situation. But the funny thing was, um, you know, uh, we were going to a show and I did it before the show. So we had to go to the show. Yeah, see, that Ooh. almost made it, but that almost Very made awkward. it, but that almost made the awkwardness also, almost made it like justified in a way. It was like, yeah, because you were a dick. Hmm. So now we're going to go to the show? Yeah. <laughs> but do you think? It reminds me of having a big relationship right, right before my girlfriend and I went on a road trip to New Orleans. Like in the car at the commencement of our trip, we got into this big fight and it's like, well, 20 hours to go. Oh my God. Oh, <laughs> Looks like we're going to work through this. <laughs> and then we're going to have a hurricane. Uh, see, she probably loved it. 20 hours to work through. That's like a dream for a woman. <laughs> and, then when you got, and then when you got in the car, you went, I'm not going to get to pick any music, am I? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I worry there's a misogynistic strain emerging in our conversation. No, it's unintentional. I, I, another uh, thing I wanted, maybe I thought you could explain, was the idea of the soul toupee because I thought oh, that that was a really cool thing. And also, I'm backtracking again, but I do want to get back to whatever you were going to yes, ask yes, me yes, about yes. Michael Rupert and oh, I just, the imminent collapse. Of I'm our really into that. I'm really into that kind of stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, not to the level like I'm not prepping. Mm-hmm. I'm more 
I like reading about it, but I don't take any action. Yeah, well, I see that you're, you know, your job is a podcast. So, <laughs> yes. you know, you're not hung, hunkered yes. down in, in the sticks with canned food and Yes, ammo. I've been thinking of getting one of those radio power, those battery-powered radios. I, the, oh, I have one of those. Do you? Yeah, it's a hand crank one. Well, yeah. Are you talking did. about preppers? A little bit. I mean, just talking about, like, this documentary, Collapse, um, mm-hmm. it's about, like, peak oil and alternate energy and how mm-hmm. shit's going to go down, basically. Yeah, but hasn't shit always been ready to go down? Sometimes it does. Yeah. That's the thing, is that people always talk that way, except once in a while in history, the shit goes down. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it only takes one time. Like, I, I was listening <laughs> to an analogy the other day where they're like, imagine you're like an ant, and like, you have your little community and stuff, and then one day someone just steps on your ant hill. Like, <laughs> yeah. I think right. it's, uh, and we're that insignificant. It's never happened before. Yeah. Well, my neighborhood was decimated during Sandy in that respect. Are we talking about any kind of collapse? Like... I mean, we're talking more about or? talking about twelve twenty one twelve. About, you know, the economy, the, Mayan, the economy, end of the world. yeah, the end of the world. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right, that's coming up. Yeah, yeah, but the Mayan calendar is cyclical. They invented zero, so it keeps going. People seem to keep glossing over that part. Yeah, it's no, gonna, there's a lot of there's a lot of controversy calendar. about when if the Mayan calendar is actually happening then, or like there were different measuring systems, so it could actually be like three years. From Why now. do we care about the apocalyptic end of uh, of a uh, a group of people that it already happened to. Mm, good point. You know? It's like, well, maybe, okay. All right, so they're dead. Cool. So we're going to hope for what they think. Awesome. I just, I, yeah. <laughs> I just like all the guys who are so into it, and then when it doesn't happen, they're like, they're always have like a rational, and never like, well, I was wrong. It's always <laughs> like, well, this is why it didn't happen, but it's going to happen this right. time. That's why I love the Heaven's Gate dudes. Those people, yeah. they were they were a they ball. Went for it. We're gonna castrate ourselves and then poison ourselves. I'm like, <laughs> I would have done it completely the other way. <laughs> <laughs> now, I remember watching that uh, film collapse, and and there's a moment toward the end of it where Michael Rupert mentions something about attempts on his life, and my ears perked up at that with hope, like, oh, maybe he's just insane. Great. <laughs> I cannot worry about this stuff after Right, right, all. right. Oh, what a relief. He's delusional. Um, I mean, he never came back to that. I have no idea if attempts were made. Well, he was saying, not. I think his reasoning behind doing that film and that kind of stuff was getting himself out there. So, like, if the government tried to come after him, because he had. It he, would be too late. It would be too late. Or, like, he would be high profile enough where it would look weird mm-hmm. as opposed to him just having. Who's, to, who's this guy? Give me the Twitter. I'm going to probably mess it up. Characters. He was in, his dad was in the CIA or something. So he had all these clearances and then uh, he found out all this stuff. He was a cop mm-hmm. and he sort of exposed corruption in the LAPD, like on live TV mm-hmm. and sort of became this kind of got all the into Serpico of LA sort of but the, he was he's super smart and um had all the stuff about kind of peak oil and population and how what does that mean peak oil forgive me uh, oh my god can you maybe we, we listeners can, we know weary pained expression once <laughs> <Then> forget again. <laughs> it this is like so he has a whole essay about Dude, how he didn't did want to hear about we, this we okay forget I'll I'll you know what I will read Tim's work <laughs> Let's do that because there's a library near me that I will check. <laughs> no out. one else take this out from the library. You should buy it. I will check his book out for free because the library <laughs> bought a copy and says that I, they can share it with as many people as they want. That is technically true. Yes, it's how it's how they function. Um, to go on a totally different tangent, you when we were emailing, you said you did a rock opera. I did. What? Um, I didn't do a you, rock you opera. Were involved I had in a very one? minor role in a rock opera. Um. We will come back to this whole toupee, by the yes. way. But 
<laughs> uh, some friends of mine, Dave Dudley and Dave Israel, guys I went to, to college with, um, back when they lived together in South Baltimore 15 years ago, they conceived the idea of this rock opera about the War of 1812. Um, they lived on Ford Avenue, so named after Fort McHenry, um, where we you know, successfully defended our city against the British and Wrote that the song. National Anthem was written. Um, Wasn't the National Anthem then, though. No, it was just a popular ditty. Yeah. Um, <laughs> then it, it was then, like a novelty tune. Like, yeah, and then he added lyrics to it. <laughs> right. It was probably yeah. something like, during the Iranian hostage crisis, there was a parody of My Sharona called Mayatola or yes. Ayatollah. Come to America and Diatola hit you in the face with a Piatola. I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> Are you a big Ber- Berkeley Breathed fan? Berkeley Breathed? I mean, I read him back when yeah. he was in the papers. Yeah, when he was ripping off Doonesbury. I hate to speak yellow of a former colleague. <laughs> no, no, he's great. Yeah, um, Nami, dude. I, I, my my dad, the most uh, right wing retired military NRA guy. Like that's one of his favorites, his opus and all that in huh, Bloom County. Interesting, which is pretty leftist. Yep, it's an interesting dude. Interesting. Yeah. So yeah, they finally, um, with the collaboration of the Baltimore Rock Opera Society, or BROS, acronymically, <laughs> uh, <laughs> finally finished and produced this rock opera. It was called 1814, with an exclamation point, which was the year of the uh, Battle of Baltimore. And am I, I mean, am I allowed to curse? I forget. Absolutely. Please. It's just fucking awesome. <laughs> I mean, they're really superb tunesmiths. And it's sort of, the frame story is like a guy our age, a middle-aged Baltimore dude is talking about his vague recollections of the story from visiting Fort McHenry as a child. And so it's told in the sort of mode of 1980s heavy metal uh, rock, which is his own, you know, the music of his youth. And so the Baltimore Rock Opera Society just has a repertory company of people. So you, you go to them and say, have you got a guy who can sing like Rob Halford of Judas Priest? And they say, oh, yeah, we got that guy. And they do have that guy. And he yeah. can sing just like Rob Halford of Judas Priest. Wow. So it was like us weird old dudes and then a bunch of kids who were like us 20 years ago with absolutely nothing better to do than collaborate <laughs> on this rock opera. And they just gave it 157% and were belting out my friend's crazy lyrics and like high vintage heavy metal splendor um it was an awesome show i think people were blown away my own role in it was a cameo as the devil and (laughs) i was on stage for maybe 60 seconds and it was so much more fun than writing or cartooning um which are boring things that you do all by yourself um I, I, i guess it just turns out that like all other americans born after 1950 my real ambition is to be a rock star <laughs> um yeah performing was great you know you get you had a cameo did you sing i did sing that's great i had i had about six lines i did not sing in okay. heavy metal style <laughs> I, I sang in kind of like a, a weird turn of the century operetta style like a, a vaudeville style that's all right gilbert and sullivan was very punk at the time mm-hmm. wow did that i mean did it ever go up to up to Broadway, to the New York area? It or? certainly could. Um, yeah. So far, a number of um, national parks and battlefields have expressed interest in, in, in it, having it performed. That, those are crazy worlds when you go to the the, the, the giant live theater that's, mm-hmm. that's the, the battlefield style where they're like, we're going to do Tecumseh. We need a cavalry over here of 14 horses, you know, and they literally, they do this and there's actors playing Daniel Boone and blah, blah, blah. And none of those are related. I'm throwing out references to sound smart, mm-hmm. but um, <laughs> there were horses. So yeah, that would make sense. 
battlefields and parks. Yeah, I think we'll definitely be performing it again. It's going to do great in Manassas. (laughs) We rocked Manassas. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I hope so. I'm ready to don the horns again at a moment's notice if they want me. Uh, Good use of the word don. You are a writer. Thank you. I was very proud of my horns. I modeled my look after Tim Curry and Legend. Yeah, you did. Truly enormous devil horns that were like easily twice the size of his head. How did he stand in that? I don't know. Tom Cruise before the Scientology and the teeth. That's right. Yeah. And me and Mia Sarah. God, I had a crush on her. It's really not a bad movie. It's a great movie. <laughs> Who did the, um, uh, is that Tony Scott? No. It's Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott, yeah. yeah. I knew it was a Scott. The one who's alive. Uh, that was terrible. Um, uh, did Queen do the music? No. No. Tangerine no. Dream did the That's soundtrack. It. Replacing an even better soundtrack by Jerry Goldsmith. Um, which is available on vinyl. Really? Yes, I have it. Tangerine Dream. <laughs> I can't believe I'm admitting that on the radio. No. I like the movie Legend. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. It's where, I, it's where I learned that unicorn horns killed poison. It's all shot on a soundstage. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. It's a bonkers, bonkers flick. It is a bonkers flick. Kind of scary, too. I think I was a bit younger when I saw that. But I dig it. I like anything Tim Curry's done, so. Anyway, I had big old horns. Yeah, man. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, I had a, um, I've never had a viral article or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a downside to that? Yeah. Because I know... There's that, not really an upside. Yeah, I was curious about hearing about just that in that context. Um, I didn't like it. What, what bugged uh, you about it? <clears throat> I mean, which, was the, your viral, which was your viral it article? Was, it was the New York Times titled it "The Busy Trap." It was an essay. It was kind of a manifesto for the lazy man mm-hmm. um, about how, when you ask anyone how they're doing these days, they say "busy, crazy busy." Um, and I read it, and I'm leading to where I heard about it. Yeah, yeah essentially, my my message in politer language was, you know what? No one gives a fuck how busy you are. Shut up. Um, it. I was arguing that it's a kind of like existential self-reassurance to claim that you're so busy and in demand. Um, anyway, who knows why these things happen? But I think reasons that don't have a whole lot to do with the content or quality of the thing, but it went viral. Everyone forwarded it or linked to it. Um, and so for about two weeks, my life became very uh, weird and stressful. Um, I mean, the upside to it, theoretically, would have been that it would um, boost sales of my book. Um, which it did, although I, I don't know for how long. Um, I did a ton of interviews. I was on MSNBC. I did a lot of radio, and I couldn't even keep track anymore. I had my publicist assistant just tell me when people would be calling me today. I couldn't remember where I was on the radio or who I was talking to. Um, I just don't know how much of that attention got diverted to my book, which had just come out. Um, the downside was that, um, I don't know, everyone on the Internet's talking about you. And it's creepy. Um, I mean, I, I don't know whether anyone will believe this, but I did not read one thing that anybody wrote in response to that article. I mean, I read everything that people emailed directly to me. Because when people are talking to you, they tend to be civil, at least. Uh, not necessarily so. And they're talking about you on the prestigious internet. Um, but e- even though I didn't read any of that some of it sort of bled around the edges and i heard from other people that there were a lot of vitriolic responses to it um and it's not a great feeling it gave me bad dreams i kept having dreams about people i loved like refusing to acknowledge me or being mad at me or calling the cops on me um 
I remember a friend of mine tried to talk to me about that essay the way she would have talked to me about anything else I wrote. Like, you know, I liked it. I would take issue with these points. And I just begged her to desist. Like, it's different now. Now that everyone in the country is talking about this, I can't, I just kind of need my friends to be in my corner unconditionally for a while. Don't, don't, don't tell me what you really think of it. <laughs> you know, I couldn't take it. I became, did that feel, seem weird to you? Because I'm sure as a writer and cartoonist for, for your career, you know, you have critics and critics reviewing things and dealing with their responses yeah. to your work. But it would, it would seem to me that, and I too have dealt with people I don't know saying things mm-hmm. and I find myself caring, uh, that that yeah, I mean, you can't help but lie awake at night wondering, is it possible I really am an asshole after all? Yeah, but I think that, that as someone who's your career path involves quote-unquote critical response and mm-hmm. reviewers listening to things, that that might, to me, it seems it will make it easier for you than randoms saying, to, 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 to disassociate yourselves from randoms going, this guy's a tool. Uh, you mean my background, like as a political cartoonist, political cartoonist, I mean, or just you know like writing, writing, writing books or, or anything things. like that? Well, getting feedback, I should say, but I, I guess mean, there's a difference. Well, I guess it's not my feedback. question. I mean, getting what, feedback on your writing is different from I yes. mean, people on the internet tend to issue ad hominem attacks. It's not just that they disagree with your ideas. So it's, it's more personal. I mean, I mean, was it? Did it have to do with the content of the writing or yeah. about Tim? Yeah. Well, both. I mean. People don't really distinguish between the two all the time. Uh, so, totally. you know, as I understand, the critiques were kind of along the line of I'm an elitist dickhead. Um, for which there's an argument to be made. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm an elitist. Have you been to a fucking mall lately? <laughs> I know that, but I, I didn't think that that essay was elitist. I, I was uh, attacking a very distinctively white-collar, upwardly mobile syndrome. You know, I wasn't talking about people who are busy because they're working three back-to-back shifts in the ICU. Right. And don't you think it's something telling if something like that bugs you that much? Yeah, of course. I mean, yeah. No, people usually write to you angrily if you have hurt them in some way or if you've threatened their view of themselves, Um, which is not to say that people don't ever have a legitimate point. I mean, sometimes you are indeed a dickhead. Um, and you need everyone in the country to tell you so. Um, but, but it speaks volumes when someone would take the time out of their very busy schedules to, to, yeah, to, to read a Puff Lifestyle piece on the internet and respond to it at furious length. Or, but you know, I'm saying in, like in you know, angry defense of the thing they claim to hate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. you no, know, it used to be you have the people that wrote angry letters to the editor every week, mm-hmm. and now it seems that the internet has allowed everyone to have their responses to those angry letters let letters my god write that down brad um uh responses to those letters that they would have while reading it out loud there's now a form for that too involving your thumbs you know mm-hmm. so it's it's fascinating we don't have a comment section on our website because as jonah puts it out it lowers the bar of humanity it does my, my friend tom hart's number one rule of life is never read the comments on anything yeah yeah that's yeah. smart I mean, I would say that's the most valuable thing I learned from being a political cartoonist is, is, and, and also just from, you know, writing polemics on the internet. Just, you don't have to read what people say about you. Mm-hmm. You don't have to Google yourself. It's shockingly easy to not do, um, especially once you've made the mistake of doing the opposite. Right. Like any nice thing someone says about you cheers you up for about 30 seconds, but any nasty thing 
they say about you gets permanently engraved in your long-term memory and just sticks in you like a spear forever. And you just walk around with this big spear uh, uh, <laughs> waggling, sticking out of your back oh, yeah. uh, for we, the rest of your life. Yeah, Joan and I worked on a television show uh, for years and, you know, we would have people writing comments all the time. And, you know, most people liked the show and what we did. Then every once in a while there would be, Joan was the writer and I was the host, there would be, it would always be something about me, you know, mm-hmm. and it was, ah, oh, this guy's such a tool, you know, or whatever. And uh, luckily I was raised by, you know, a Southern woman who was, speaks sarcasm as a, as a fluent second language. Uh-huh. So I have a very thick skin. So I just found it almost turned fun to, to respond. Yeah. But then that would turn into something awful. You it know does. what I mean? Because it never got into, because I would always find if I could be completely surreal in the response, and it usually involved the following phrase of, thank you for watching. Um, do you like Iron Maiden? Killers is a great record. And that was it. And that mm-hmm. usually would just end it. And then I would always, I, I, I always knew I lost the battle by saying, what's the name of your TV show? Mm. And I was like, oh, you got me I've in there. I lowered myself. Oh, yeah, now I'm a that's jerk. That's the worst feeling. Yeah. And I was like, why did I do that? Why did I let it go? Does... Because there was supposed to, there was supposed to be joy in mm-hmm. that response. I'm supposed to feel better. No, you don't. But now I'm you a, now I, I'm a I know dickhead. Whenever someone writes me furious mail, which happens rarely, people mm-hmm. don't usually aren't usually cruel to your face, as it were. Right. Um, but behind your back on the internet. But whenever that does, I always respond civilly, mm-hmm. um, like in in the calm internet voice. Um, and I usually don't hear back. Like right. I'll say at most, like the level of anger you're bringing to bear on this essay seems to me incommensurate to it. Uh, wow. and, and I usually hear nothing back. <laughs> we had an incredible experience here with one of our guests that uh, Joan is a big fan of, um, a songwriter named Dave Bazan, who Jonah wrote a review of one of his records that wasn't like, it was a good review, but it wasn't like super favorable. And David came up to him. Yeah, and, like, we talk- talked about it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we talked about it on the podcast. But yeah, I, I wrote. I was a big fan of his, and then he did the side project I didn't like, and mm-hmm. I worked at a magazine, and I wrote it. And then he was like, I saw that review. I thought you had made some really good points, and it was a dialogue. Most of the times, guys in rock bands, if you write something bad about them, they're your friend. And then if you write anything bad, mm-hmm. they're like going to beat you up. Right. Or like, it's such a weird... We've had that too. Yeah. I sometimes write criticism, and I, I feel worse and worse about it now that I'm, you know... A, writer and have criticism written about me i I feel like you got to be on one side or the other and i think maybe i can't you know even though i I try to be a fair and and honest critic i just feel like i just don't want to be the guy who's making some other artist's day worse totally totally um it's a great line my my friend ben walker who has a, a radio show on fmu uh once wrote a hilarious letter to the cartoonist ivan brunetti who did um this amazing comic full of loathing for himself and for all humanity. It was called Schizo. And uh, Ben basically said, I I hate artists like you who are taking attention away from artists who are trying to say something honest and, and, you know, true about the world. And his PS was, please kill yourself. And uh, Ivan wrote, sent back a postcard that I, I don't know if it was like a form postcard or if he had written it for the occasion, but it said, thanks for writing, but no one cares what you think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I actually used to on my on my website. I used to have um, 
Now, I must speak about this cautiously, but I, I had an intern uh, <laughs> who is a, a Romanian woman whose name was Felicia Chocula Hotpants. And uh, she answered all letters for me. And I made it clear that only she would answer letters. English was not her first language, suffice it to say. And um, it was an excellent device for inuring myself to ad hominem attacks. Like people would get furious at her. Like, you must be proud of yourself working for such a man. And it was very difficult to take them seriously. <laughs> I recommend it to people. Can she work for us? I going to say. And she's, gone, she's gone to, she's living in Paris now. <laughs> oh, they all moved to the Champs-Élysées. Yeah, she's dating some choreographer who rides a motorcycle now. What? <laughs> Again? <laughs> Again? Um, you said that earlier on, 9-11 happened, George Bush, you became a political cartoonist. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you gone to non-political cartooning again? Would you ever? Um, if someone paid me for it, I would. I, I hardly ever draw anymore. I feel a little bad about it because whenever I do draw, it's fun. It's much more satisfying than writing because, you know, in the way that it's fun to draw when you're a kid, you've got something at the end of your day that did not exist that morning. It's nice to look at. It's way more satisfying than a draft of an essay, which never really feels like it's finished. Um, but, you know, like I said, they only ever paid me 20 bucks a week, and that became less and less cool the older I got. Right. And I, I don't know. If someone else I, – I just need deadlines. I need there to be someone out there who's going to yell at me or be disappointed if I don't get it done every week. Um, I'd kind of like to be a cartoonist again, yeah. I feel like it, it – it allows me to express a whole other side of my personality that's dormant right now. It's like much funnier and stupider and younger feeling. Um, I, I feel like I, I seize up and get all right early. Were, were there any cartoonists after you got involved that, that you liked or were inspired by or enjoyed their work? Um, you mean like political cartoonists? Yeah, and or, I, you know, the pl- thing about political cartoonists for me is the, like, the cultural importance of it, which mm-hmm. I always found fascinating throughout history mm-hmm. you know like like from the start of our country on like even before then like political mm-hmm. cartoons had a giant effect on everyone you know mm-hmm. mostly because a lot of people couldn't read you know um but i don't know any you know what i mean like I, it's kind of a dead art form now yeah I mean, most political cartoonists in in daily newspapers are still churning out these kind of bad cross-hatched macrocephalic caricatures of politicians or donkeys and elephants and it's all labeled oh my god someone's got a tumblr that that talks about bad political cartoons and yesterday i saw one it was amazing the artist had forgotten the original purpose of labeling which is to establish a metaphorical linkage that you're too lazy or unimaginative to do visually and he had labeled a cockroach cockroach (laughs) ah which really opens up a whole new world of possibilities. Like, you don't wow. even need to draw anymore <laughs> to do a political cartoon. And, like, the blogger, he had clearly reached the end of his rope with this one. He just wrote in all capitals, Why is the cockroach labeled fucking cockroach? <laughs> he could not take it anymore. I guess he just, maybe the artist thought, you know, I can't draw a cockroach. <laughs> he could draw a cockroach. It was a cockroach. Uh, I mean, you know, it was recognizably... An object labeled as what it was, redundantly. It's me trying to help someone misunderstood that I don't know. But you know what? I want to backtrack and say, yeah, I th- for my money, the best political cartoonist working in those years uh, was, I'm trying to remember his uh, pen name, uh, Reuben Bowling, who did Tom the Dancing Bug. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, n- I know him somewhat. We're not 
good friends, but we've hung out and had beers a couple times. But I, I really felt like he was the funniest and smartest political cartoonist of that that era. I also really liked David Reese's Get Your War On. Yeah. That yes. was great. Even though I, I generally despise clip art, for him it worked. Like it was the contrast yeah. between that bland mm. corporate clip art and the kind of musical mm-hmm. profanity of the strip that was really doing it. When you when you drew this is always fascinating because over time it's it's the big issue with, you know, comic strips is you work on this giant thing and then they get squish it down to about a you know, length of your index finger. Mm-hmm. Um you know, how large was your work? It before? got bigger and bigger. Okay. Um, especially because, you know, my my second book called Why Do They Kill Me? Uh, those are cartoons from the first term of the Bush administration. And, uh, I just, you know, I was, I was drawn hungover a lot in those days. Uh, and sometimes, you know, if it was like New Year's Day, I would just do a chart. <laughs> I got I got lazy, and then it got collected. When in doubt, a, bar graph. <clears throat> exactly, bar graph. Uh, and seeing it collected between two covers, it's not like I'm ashamed of the book, but I, as artist, I couldn't help but think, I wish I'd spent another couple days on that. You know, I'd, I'd drawn a book by default, and I I worked a lot harder after that. The drawings got a lot more involved in the second term of the Bush years, um, so they were pretty big to answer what was actually your question. Um, I mean, the originals, there aren't really originals because I got lazy with Photoshop. The originals were like six pieces of paper um, scattered around my room. Gotcha. Do you still have everything? or Yeah, you... they're all in a box. Got it. They're not They're not stored the way they ought to be. No. <laughs> they're in a box in a storage space in Brooklyn. Mention <laughs> this hungover more than once. Where do you drink a lot in New York? Gee, do I, do I want to publicize it? <laughs> um I'll I'll just say it's the quietest bar in New York City. I like a quiet bar where you can have a conversation. Yeah, I do too. They I, have them, especially. Mm-hmm. Well, this is why I don't want to tell people. Fair enough. Yeah, I don't, don't blame give it you. Away. Definitely shouldn't say it. But yeah, I, I DJ at a bar at once a month, and mm-hmm. it's like quiet I, as hell. It's Boom! A, I, I feel bad sometimes <laughs> because I hate going to bars where the music loud and you have to yell at people. I'm mm-hmm. like, why did you come? What's the point if you can't hear anyone? Right. But then I do it. I've never understood how anyone picks up girls in bars like yeah. that. How do you do it without talking? Because then they I, you're can't tell the wrong if you're dude. a dipshit or not. Yeah. Because they're like, we need to go outside and talk. Well, I guess it helps outside. to be very good looking, maybe. <laughs> you know, you're I, asking uh, the wrong guy. <laughs> when I met Dick Manitoba, he was working at this bar on St. Mark's. Dick the, Manitoba? Yeah, you met Dick Manitoba? <laughs> no, it's an amazing name. <laughs> He's the singer for the Dictators. But he... Uh, handsome Dick Manitoba. Handsome Dick Manitoba. <laughs> This was probably like 93 or something. But he was bartending in this bar that like the second I, – I, I went to visit – you know, I went to the bar and it was really – it's so pleasant here. This bar is great. And the second time there, I realized there was no fucking music. Mm-hmm. Like none, not low music. And musicians love to hang out there because mm. musicians are constantly bombarded with loud music. Right. So like he had a huge – and he was like – and I asked him about it finally. I'm like – so like was this a conscious decision and he's like well originally we just opened the place and we had didn't have a stereo yet but then everybody was so into it i just never got one and it was just the place was inundated with musicians Mm. like you'd go there after rehearsal and be like oh my god this is so pleasant (laughs) but i've never been into a bar that was completely they always feel like they have to put at least quiet background music Um, on the, the the bar i favor is the quiet is actually enforced so there's actually no music at all? There's sometimes Gregorian chants. <laughs> what if people are like laughing really loudly? The, the barmaid will shush you. Wow, they shush. I love that. 
This is the greatest place. So you don't like libraries, but no, I do like I'm libraries. <laughs> I get I get all my yeah. No, I love the library. I'm a big library devotee. So basically, you drink at the library. <laughs> you outed me. I was at the library. Picturing me in the vast ornate reading room with like a paper bag and a, a pint of whiskey. I was at the library bar last night, actually. Oh, the that, loudest yes. damn bar ever. And it's not, yeah, it is not a quiet bar. Where is that again? It's on uh, First, Avenue A yeah, yeah, between yeah, First yeah. and Houston. Yeah. Right. It's a nice bar. They don't use cushions in their seats. Mm hmm. God, the library bar. Sorry, I've only been there twice with Jonah. <laughs> so yes. should we backtrack to Soul to Pay at this yes, time? Yes, yes. Is, this is that, that okay? I mean, I, yeah. I feel like I don't want to talk about the stuff you always talk about, and I feel like that might... I don't know if I've talked about Soul to Pay too much. Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm just going to have to reiterate what I already wrote in the book, basically, <laughs> for your listeners. Okay. Uh, the Soul to Pay is a... This is a phrase that um, I think my friend Michelle Guinau, who's a, who's a photographer then for the Baltimore City Paper coined um she and i used to hang out in the afternoon sometimes at baltimore's cross street market one of my favorite places on earth um and there's a guy there who had the the saddest toupee in the whole world and um they also serve extremely large beers there they're 32 ounces um and so they make you philosophical and and we segued over the course of those beers from the literal to the metaphorical and it occurred to us that we all wore such a toupee except in, in most of our cases it is not a literal toupee it's the soul toupee and the soul toupee is the thing that you believe you are successfully concealing from the world uh it's the thing you're most ashamed of and you believe you've got successfully covered up and you've got them all fooled when in fact it is movingly obvious and transparent and pathetic to everyone around you um irony often being that the thing you are most anxious to conceal is in fact a thing that people like about you like you're not the best judge of your own virtues um and usually it's it's not only evident to everyone but they don't care plus they kind of love you for that thing um so you're saying people actually love them for the bad toupee sometimes not always but I don't know. Like I, I, it's it's. Say you have a, a friend who's very, um, who's who's always sunny tempered and optimistic. I mean, you, you might cherish the times that, that person confesses to to doubts or depression, or someone who always seems really confident and firm and decisive. Like you, you would value the glimpses of them being uncertain and vulnerable. I mean, because that's, you know, that's what makes friendships is is not just good times mm -hmm. but it's actually admitting that you're you know lost and suffering and and screwed up and at sea like everybody is um i don't know like you know i wrote that the, that soul toupee comes up in the context of an essay about a friend of mine who um told a lot of stories that were not true about himself uh i, I don't call them wise because they never felt like that they didn't have the quality of a lie like i've met pathological liars in bars where they can always one up your story um but it didn't feel like that they they felt like stories you know and everyone knew after a while that they weren't true and i think he would have been i don't know i, I think he would have been embarrassed or ashamed to be caught out but we didn't really care you know we were sorry mostly that he felt like he had to tell them that because it seemed evident that he, he felt bad about himself on some level and was trying to cover something up but whatever that thing was, we would have been, you know, sympathetic to or, or just indifferent to. We would have made fun of him for it in right. an affectionate and right. friendly way. 
Um, you I also know. like that sole toupee implies an industry that actually sells them. <laughs> I, know. I think there are industries like that. Yeah, um, that, yeah that's so interesting. I, I like it. One of the things I was thinking about when you were telling this story was like, man, me and my friends don't talk about anything this and i feel like you like this record like yeah it's pretty cool that's mm-hmm. right. lying you've done we both have done that you've hung out you find a place that's that 32 true. ounce yeah. beers that is true we should do that yeah 32 ounce beers i could drink half of one like some beer garden where they serve yards of beer yes you'll you'll get down to the nitty-gritty i'm sure i, right? I remember being in in um in budapest can't remember which one it was but it was one of them there's and, more than one Budapest? Well, it's Buda and Pest. It's two separate cities. I did not know that. Separated know. by the Blue Danube, oh. as we dumb English speakers say. Excuse me, we speak American and we're proud of it. Um, and uh, uh, I was drinking with uh, some dudes and uh, had these beers. And then the waitress went by with a tray of giant beers. Mm-hmm. Must have been a yard. Excuse me, a meter. We, we were in Hungary. A meter of beer. And... Uh, oh. uh, I was like, "What? We? Why didn't we get those?" Yeah, it's and she, terrible that feeling—the envy, the, the covetousness <laughs> yes. of the better beer. <laughs> and then she went, "Well, these were for the Frenchmen upstairs." And I went, "Well, they're an offensive group of people." And we took the beer. Nice. Yeah, <laughs> the Frenchmen upstairs. Yes. I'm so sure. I'm please, glad you stole their beers. Please, <laughs> these are ours. Please take them these dainty little yeah. cocktails with umbrellas in them instead, with yeah. our American compliments. Thank you. <laughs> It was a fun restaurant. And where... you're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, politically, if you, um, uh, with uh, the president administration, um, mm-hmm. not George Bush, do you find you have anything fun to write about or draw about if you were to choose to? You know, I, I keep submitting political op-eds to the New York Times and they run like Everything that I send them except when it's about politics. They never print them. And I like, of course, to imagine that that's because they can't handle the shit I am laying down. But it's possible that I'm just, you know, a ranting lefty and it's boring to read people's screeds. Um, You know, my my editor, he's not the one who would decide about political essays, but his best guess is like it's just harder to be interesting about politics because usually once you know which side someone's on, you know everything they've got to say already. Hmm. Um, I mean, my, the essays I wrote about politics were mostly about Occupy Wall Street, which I was somewhat involved with. Hmm. I didn't go sleep on the ground because I'm 45, but I, I took supplies to people there and worked at the volunteered at their their library. Um, and I wrote at least three essays about Occupy Wall Street while that was going on. Couldn't get anyone to, to run them, though. Yeah, it was interesting. We had um, uh, Jonah knows a comedian we had on the podcast named Jamie Kilstein, mm-hmm. and he was great. And um, he calls himself left of the left. Mm-hmm. And when we had him on the the show, uh, he starts talking about drone strikes. And I'm a very, um, you know, uh, as as in, I'm as informed as I think I am until I find out there's something that oh crap, why didn't I know that? Uh-huh. You know, and he started talking all about the drone strikes. And I started reading more about it and getting angrier and angrier and, and upset. And then I found myself thinking, why does my dad not like this guy? He uh-huh. seems to be doing everything that he he likes. Uh-huh. You know, Obama, you mean? Yeah, Obama. It's like it's like he, you know, it, it's a uh, not a transparent government. There's mm-hmm. there's you know, there's a lot of secrets, and the term "kill list" has been floated around quite yeah. a bit. You know, you know, I, I'm. This does not reflect particularly well on me, but I got so burned out on politics after the Bush administration that I basically just disengaged, and I've paid very little attention for the last four years. But I've got friends who are, 
you know, about at the same point on the political spectrum I am who feel that Obama's a worse president than George Bush because it's pretty much the same policies except with a lefty-friendly face, that the mm-hmm. differences are cosmetic. And so we've stopped protesting. Like if it was the third term of the Bush administration, we'd still be in the streets angrily chanting and drumming and waving our giant puppets with rage because mm-hmm. the same stuff is still going on. He hired a lot of the same people, which I was like, that's very telling. Um, you know, and it's interesting because I, I I'm, you know, I'm a classic registered independent, you mm-hmm. know, because um, that comes with growing up with a very Republican father and a registered Democrat mother who voted for Nixon twice. She's very oddly. Huh. Um, and she's like, I love Carter. He's a very odd person, you know, but I'd so I, like I. The Venn diagram of people who both voted for Nixon and love Carter has got to be a small one. Yeah, I think it's her. <laughs> you know? um, so I, you know, I, I don't like to get too involved because I tend to hate things that make me feel stupid, mm. you know, where I'm like, I don't seem to know what I'm talking about. But when you speak to someone who's so <laughs> convicted, who sounds like they know what they're talking about and can back it up with these facts, you know, I get, I get very befuddled, which is why no, I like... very annoying. What's well, why I like political cartoons because like sum it up in a picture because I read a lot of comic books right and I like that because I like pictures and thought balloons and I also like stories and art you know um, so things of that nature is like oh oh thank you I get it you know they they work out for me um, but that doesn't explain why my dad enjoys Mallard Fillmore Mallard Fillmore that's the worst yeah I mean just artistically yeah it's pretty bad. Yeah. You know this one? No, I don't. It's in the Washington Times, but not the Washington Post. It's a right-wing duck. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) That's all I've got to say. (laughs) 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 What else do I need to tell you? That's it, man. That's great. It's just lazy. It's just a picture of the duck and then his screed for that day. Yeah, it's Rush Limbaugh as a duck. Rush Limbaugh as a duck. Yeah, which is kind of the same. He is kind of a duck when you think about it. Verb and noun. I don't feel like I've ever been that well-informed politically, really. Mm-hmm. I, just, I, just, I felt like I always reacted to politics in a very stupid, visceral way. Um, like, I felt like there was a certain truth in that, but it's not like I really knew what I was talking about. It was just kind of my, my cartoons were moral more than they were political. I just felt kind of righteously outraged by things but i think that's how people react when you hear about things in politics where it was yeah, like we turn everything into a moral issue in because we're like that's so, not right exactly you know? and i feel like you know the financial collapse nobody i know except for matt taibbi who writes about it better than mm-hmm. anyone understands what happened there but everyone's got this kind of dumb gut sense that hey man that does not seem like that was right Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, it totally. seems like other people broke either a law or something that should have been a law, and they're fine, and we all somehow got screwed and are paying for it. Yeah, but did, like most of that, those regulations, like wasn't it? Didn't Glass Steagall get changed during Clinton? Yeah. So, so it's like it's this weird setup where it's almost like these surplus years of Clinton, right? As you know, he changed the financial regulations towards the tail end i'm kind of guessing here mm-hmm. bush comes in shit goes down he's not the brightest bulb on the planet anyway people start taking advantage well of, plus he got elected not to meddle no yeah well yeah that's i love george carlin he kept calling him governor bush mm-hmm. you know that's him uh didn't get elected properly but then you know dealing with the the financial fallout of these regulations and then everything goes you know haywire 
You know what I mean? I just feel like, and I feel like other people have said this, but I feel like I'm so cynical about everything that I'm like, it doesn't matter. Like, it's like all the stuff is, I feel like the president doesn't have that much say. It's like the economy's great, everyone loves the president, but how much of an effect does he actually have? Well, there are situations, mostly international ones, where <laughs> the president actually, as a human being, has to make a decision. And, you know, it may matter a half dozen times in an administration who right. the president happens to be. But it turns out that can matter a lot. Remember the whole war on terror thing. Yeah, that's true. But I feel like there's so many external... Fa- like, I feel like when you look at unemployment or something, it's like... How, well, how- it seems weird to me that, like, hardcore libertarians expect the president to do something about unemployment. Like, you're right. a libertarian until it's the president's <laughs> duty to give you a job. How does that work? I mean, what, I thought, what is the president... That what was is the-, the economy? I have no idea. And what's the president supposed to do about it? That was the opposite of libertarians, that you don't want the president to give you a job that you Yeah, want. I know. I just mean I'm basically erecting a straw man argument. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like conservatives are, you know, they don't want the government inter- – I mean, everyone has the same political philosophy. They don't want the I government interfering unless – Until you're, you need it. Yeah, unless yes. you're going to have a baby and then, whoa, and no. That's everyone's political philosophy yeah. and they just draw the line in different places at mm-hmm. what they need. Yeah, it's cops are stupid until someone's robbing me. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> We're basically a nation of sullen teenagers. <laughs> <laughs> Leave me alone, man. I could smoke right here. It keyed my car. <laughs> do you have plans to do like another kind of collection? Like, we not nothing? only plans, but a contract to do. Really, that's great news. Yeah. Uh, so it's the working title is "I wrote this book because I love you." My friend Boyd came up with that. He's a good title man. Nice. In fact, he just wrote me an, an email yesterday that contained a phrase I thought would make another awesome book title. This can't continue. That's a good collection title. This can't continue. So yeah, I'm going to write another book of essays. And I'm, I'm saying I know what it'll be about, but I don't really. Um, it'll, I'll just write it the way I wrote the first one. Did you have a lot of ideas for the first one that didn't... Because I feel like all those stories are so kind of vivid and visceral. They must have... And I don't know. I mean, do you have a lot of stories like that or where there's some cut? Yeah, or do you I, sort know, of know? I, I, would, I don't know what the percentage would be, but I, I wrote... Some of the essays I planned to write for that book and others just didn't happen and um, others came to me, uh, sometimes because I figured out a way of writing about something. Like I didn't think I was going to write that essay about my friend I call Skelly, the one who told the stories, um, because there were certain aspects of that story I could not tell and will never tell anyone. And I thought that that crippled it to a point where it simply couldn't couldn't be written about. But I was talking to my friend Tom Hart, the same one with the rule, never read the comments on anything. And he's an autodidact, essentially. And so he is, unlike people who are formally educated, still interested in life. And so he was really keenly interested in hearing me talk about this guy. And it made me, he's one of those guys who makes you realize you've got something to say. And I thought, okay, I think there's a way to write about this after all, without revealing the things I don't want to. And also some stuff happened uh, while I was writing the book that I hadn't expected. Like I met my biological mother and two half-sisters, which was a big deal. And two, um, it, it was an experience I felt I had to write about, even though I, I also knew on some level it's too soon to write about it, but I couldn't let it go. Um, and it made a nice ending to the book, too, because a lot of those essays are about people I've lost, and that was an essay about getting some people back who you didn't even know you were missing. So this is why really, it's annoying that you've written a book about this stuff. I'm like, I want to hear that story. He's going to tell me to read the fucking well, book. It is at the New York Public yeah. Library. <laughs> I live in I, Jersey. I really like the oh, they're taking them away. <laughs> I also love that cartoon about you getting stabbed in the way it never kind of resolved. Like 
that perspective of it I thought was so interesting. What tell the the telling of that story? Yeah. Yeah. You got stabbed? Yeah. Don't make me tell the story. I'm not going to. I'm just <clears throat> I'm just really just, annoyed. This I, is what bothers me. Is you're another person I know who's been stabbed. How many people do you know? I know a bunch. We should have a club. Um, yeah, <laughs> we, should just, meet, we should meet in a a safe place. <laughs> We've seen a lot of stabbings. I had, a, I had a knife put to my throat when I was 12. You know? 12? Yeah. By who? Yeah. Dude on the bus. Dude on the bus, of course. <laughs> yeah. On, uh, I went, uh, let's put it this way. I didn't realize how bad the schools I went to on an army base was till I was a substitute teacher and went to South Central hmm. and walked in and felt an odd familiarity. I see. Yeah. Wow. Didn't even think about it. And then now I look. I think having a knife held to your throat counts. I think you're in the stabbing club. Yeah, you're but an I, honorary member. But the thing was, I knew the dude. Oh. So at the end of it, I, I was like, Jerry, <laughs> stop it. Did that change the dynamic? Um, quickly, because I think once he realized that I knew it was him, that yeah. he kind of stopped. But well, I've had that. I've had guns put to my head. Just at for some pragmatic point. reasons. Yeah. I mean, you're going to pick him out of the lineup. Yeah, eventually. And also, I think I think there's that weird realization that. Your dad outranks my dad. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah, it's a very weird dynamic. I've I've mentioned this before on the show that I didn't grow up knowing races, but I knew enlisted and officers. And my dad was a a lieutenant colonel, so there was a different, Mm. you know. Do you ever read Bill Malden's cartoons? Mm -mm. The Willie and Joe from from World War II? No. He was uh, enlisted, and he had a real hatred for that class divide. That's obnoxious. And and, and, And the children don't know it. And you and you realize it, but you don't act on it. And we, I remember realizing it in in a, in, a, in a way because my dad, who again, is this enigma. He's like this right wing guy, but who loves Bloom County. You know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. one of my best friends. Does he know that that's a political allegory? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. He's, <laughs> Thought maybe he just likes the penguin. He might just like the penguin. <laughs> it, that that might just be it. <laughs> but one of my one of my buddies' uh, dads was a master sergeant. And so when their families would come over, we'd all hang out because we'd play together and, you know, have barbecues or whatever. He would always call my dad, sir. Hmm. And my dad was always like, he would never say cut it out, but he just never, you could tell that he didn't like it. He yeah. was weird about it, you know, because he, my dad was drafted and uh, he just didn't, I don't know, it's weird. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? But he, he wasn't, <clears throat> but there are some officers who's like, yeah, sir, even in civilian clothes, you know, you have to be able to say may I speak candidly. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a weird it, the enlisted officer thing is kind of bizarre. I've heard that it's changed quite a bit now, that there's oh. no longer officers in enlisted clubs oh. and on bases. That's probably good. Yeah. Well, Bill Malden had a famous cartoon where, where two uh, officers are standing somewhere in the Alps, probably, during the war. And they're looking at the, the um, sun streaming down through the clouds into the valley. And one of them says, magnificent view. Is there one for the enlisted men? <laughs> Here's my favorite thing about having guests is that um, we don't do a whole lot of prep. We just like to hang and talk and learn from them. So after the fact, I just went and scoured the internet for all of Tim's stuff and hadn't seen a lot of his cartoon work, if at all. He's an amazing artist. Yeah. It's ridiculous. So all of his books, all of his websites, he has a new book he's working out now. Please check that out. Uh, if you enjoy checking us out, hit us up on Facebook. That's where you can comment. And you can comment by hitting a fabulous thumbs up sign. Um, and if you also want to listen to the podcast on our glorious website made by the wonderful people at Parsley and Sprout. Sprouts are, I think it's Sprout. Maybe it's Sprouts. 
You'd say, assume it's sprouts. I, forgive me, guys. I, I was just looking. <laughs> I, I don't know. It's, it'll be easy to find either way. Although yeah. I tried to look it up the other day because I wanted to write something about them, and all these recipes came up for, like, parsley soup yes. and stuff. So it's not food-based. But they're, they were amazing, and we love how our website looks. And they put a fabulous donate button on there if you'd like to send us some cash to support our efforts. We are like PBS, and at some point we will have tote bags. 